Welcome to the Combat Morale Podcast with me, Dr. Tom Thorpe. I'm the editor, producer and host for the programme. The podcast explores why combatants in armed conflict flight and endure, and in some situations, other combatants desert, mutiny or refuse to fight. For more information, go to the website at combatmorale.com. This is episode 7, season 1, and today I speak to Dr. Morris Brody. Morris describes him as an anarchic historian, but he's also a digital intern at Briswith University working with the IWM on the Holocaust. He's also the co-presenter of the podcast Historians Cut, that is historians underscore cut. Morris's PhD thesis looked at anarchist combatants fighting in the Spanish Civil War. I was interested to explore how their political convictions may have shaped their combat motivation. Morris gave me his thoughts from his office in Aberystwyth, Mid Wales. Morris, welcome to the podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in anarchists during the Spanish Civil War? Yep, thanks, Tom. It's lovely to, to be here, lovely to be asked. So, yes, I'm, I'm Morris Brody. I'm a historian of the international anarchist movement. So, um, I've just recently published a book on transatlantic anarchism, anarchists from Britain, America, and Ireland during the Spanish Civil War. Uh, I first got interested in the Spanish Civil War during my, my undergrad, and I've basically continued that through my studies, master's, and, and PhD. and uh, managed to find a niche that uh, a lot of people haven't really looked at, which is the international anarchist movement, because the anarchist movement is, has been very well studied in the Civil War, but less from a, an international perspective. So before we get into what motivated these individuals, could you give us some broad background on what the main political tenets um, of anarchism was? And what would be, what would I, and what would I, if I was an anarchist in the 1930s, what would I believe? Right. Well, that's a, that's a complicated question. Um, I'll try not to give a complicated answer. Basically, there are three main tenets of anarchism in order to be classified as anarchist, in my opinion. It needs to be, first of all, anti-state. So against the, the state, the, the um, centralization of power, the, you know, the legitimacy and the use of force being reserved completely for the state. Um, it needs to be anti-capitalist. Um, which is something that some modern quote-unquote anarchists sometimes don't really uh, associate themselves. Um, so it, it's it's the left wing of the socialist movement, the left wing of the communist movement, you might say. Um, you know, if you think of, say, social democracy as the centre-left, you have Marxism as the, the far left, the anarchist movement is, is further left than even that. Um, and the other tenant is a kind of commitment to egalitarianism and equality. Um, in terms of the anarchists, there's lots of different anarchist strands of thought. In the early 20th century, and indeed for most of anarchist history, the most popular strands have been anarcho-communism and anarcho-syndicalism, which are collectivist ideologies in terms of anarcho-communism basically is to do with the organisation of society after the revolution, if you will. Um, so this common is a common common property, common um, you know, the abolition of money. The main theorist of this would be Peter Kropotkin, who was very popular in Spain. He wrote the conquest of bread, uh, amongst other things, fields, factories, and workshops. Um, Anarcho syndicalism is arguably more of a method than an end goal. It's to do with the trade union movement, and it's 
that's what most of the kind of large trade unions in this period, the CNT, the National Confederation of Labour, um, which is the main actor of anarchism in the Spanish Civil War in Spain. Uh, it was anarcho-syndicalist. Um, so basically, it's kind of a lot of emphasis on, on general strikes and the organisation of anarchism through the through the workplace and through through workers and factories and things. Like that. Now, this question might be uh, quite difficult to answer and give it a precise figure on, but how many international anarchists do you believe actually served during the Spanish Civil War? And what was a rough proportion of what might be called foreign fighters who also served on the Republican side in the Civil War? So, yeah, no, again, it's a slightly difficult question to answer, mainly because anarchists aren't very good at keeping records, um, as you can imagine. Communists are excellent record keepers. They write everything down and it's all very well organised. But anarchists, uh, some cliches are true. You know, their attitude to organisation is a bit haphazard. Um, So there aren't really very detailed records for some of the militias, anarchist militias in in the early stages of the war. In terms of total foreign anarchists, it's probably going to be somewhere between two and three thousand that we're talking about. Um, and this is from lots of different areas, you know, all over the world. Um, largely, the main basis ones are, are France and Italy and, and also Germany. Um, and in terms of comparing that to, to other foreign volunteers, the figures for the international brigades, um, which are, are organised by the Comintern, the Communist International, they're viewed as between sort of 32 and 35,000. Um, so it's, it's a small percentage, but it's still a significant number of, of, of total volunteers. So what motivated these anarchists to enlist and travel to Spain and take up arms? And what was the role of their political commitment in this um, desire to go to the Iberian Peninsula? So yeah, there was certainly a range of motivations. Um, I think it's pro- it is probably fair to say, though, that ideology and politics was the driving factor, I think. Um, a, a large majority of, you know, Anarchists who went over would have been members of anarchist groups or anarchist trade unions. Um, it was also unlike the international brigades, which the Comintern, you know, pushed and organised volunteers. The international anarchist movement didn't have an organisation as such that organised volunteers. There was the International Working Men's Association, which was the kind of anarchist version of the Comintern, but uh, the CNT, which was a, a constituent part of the IWMA as it, as it was known actually didn't really want volunteers that much. They were more concerned about getting arms. Um, so they weren't actually concerned with trying to advertise people to come over. So if they did come over, then it was generally a kind of belief in trying to fight the good fight and complete the revolution, um, basically. There's also quite a number of refugees who were anarchists who served in, in foreign units. So from places like Nazi Germany, Austria, Italy... Um, so in many cases, these were, I suppose you could call them stateless peoples because they weren't welcome in their own states. You know, they were actively hounded out of them. And in fact, a lot of the Germans actually didn't come directly from Germany. They came via places like Belgium and the Netherlands, where quite a lot of them worked as uh, dockers and kind of, uh, sailors and things like that. Um, so that was the kind of main driving force from that point of view. Um, in terms of other motives, you know, there, there, will, there will be, you know, cases of, of people going um, to escape stuff. You know, there's a few references to the Deruti column, for example, which was one of the main uh, foreign anarchists, well, one of the main anarchist militias, but had a significant international group. Um, when there was people from the Foreign Legion who were 
skilled and skilled mercenaries, I suppose, uh, mainly going for the money, although the money wasn't very good. So that wasn't a hugely driving driving factor. Um, there were also uh, women and, and men who, who went as, as husband and wife uh, or as partners or compañeros. Um, so there's a, there's a German anarchist called uh, Werner Drescher who was in Spain and he joined a militia alongside his wife, who's a, an English woman called Greville Texador. Uh, and they actually got married in a kind of trade union wedding by the CNT, which I absolutely love. Um, and so it was quite common for, for, for female anarchists to follow their male partners, at least in the early stages of the war, and several hundred in instances of that. So what units did uh, the anarchists generally join? Did they serve with the famous international brigades? Uh, short answer is yes, they did. Um, so my research looks, at, as I said, looks at Irish, British and American anarchists, and around half of them joined the international brigades, um, usually the British Battalion or the Abraham Lincoln Brigade, um, there's a, there's a few in other foreign-speaking units as well. Um, and in, on the other half joined either anarchist or non-communist or Trotskyist militias. So the um, the PUM, the Workers' Party of Marxist Unification, which uh, was made famous by George Orwell since he joined a militia unit of their, that, that, uh, that party while in Spain. There was a few anarchists who joined PUM militias, but the most... Common militias were anarchist militias such as the Duty Column, the Escaso Column. Um, you had smaller units like the Muerte es Maestro militia, meaning death is master militia, and also the uh, fabulously named Batalón de la Muerte, um, which is the Battalion of Death, um, which served in a number of engagements. Um, so some groups had international groups, or some units had international groups, but not all did. Sometimes they were just scattered in with Spanish-speaking units as well. There was international groups in the Batallon de la Muerte and uh, the Duruti Column and a few others. So what was the sort of level of engagement uh, in the military struggle with these units? Did, did they see a lot of action? In the early, it depends basically when the anarchists got to Spain. Uh, in the early days, there was already some quite a large anarchist exile movement in Barcelona before the Civil War started in 1936. The German-speaking anarchist movement was quite strong there. They actually set up a a unit uh, called, you know, the group of German anarcho-syndicalists in exile in 1934. So they were already there when the coup happened and the, the revolution broke out. So they saw a lot of action on the Aragon front, which is in kind of eastern, northeastern bit of Spain towards next to Catalonia. Um, and these these units basically kind of pushed the nationalist units back towards Zaragoza and Huesca. Um, and then kind of got stopped there in the kind of late summer 1936. Once this front kind of came to a stalemate, they then moved, they got transferred to Madrid, to the, the Battle of Madrid, where Duruti, Buenaventura Duruti, who's named after the, or who gave his name to the Duruti column, he was killed in November 1936 in Madrid. Um, so he was the commander. And then following that, they went back to the Aragon front um, and took part in, there was quite a lot of guerrilla actions, um, you know, night missions, things like this, crossing rivers under the cover of darkness. Um, the main engagements were from, from that point around Madrid and then to the north of Spain. So it basically depends which time you joined if you were an anarchist. If you joined at the start, you would have seen a lot of action. If you joined a couple of months in, the front was much more quiet. So what kept these volunteers fighting uh, on active services and how did they sort of endure the travails of, of being a combatant? 
Well, I think it depends which volunteer you, you look at, I think. Um, I mean, some anarchists were, you know, very hardcore ideologues who would have given their lives for the cause, you know, and probably the majority would have been like that. Um, and in terms of what, what motivated and what kept them there, the Spanish Civil War is interesting because there's a kind of parallel revolution that happens at the same time. Um, so in areas like Catalonia and, and Aragon, they have widespread collectivization of agriculture and factories in similar ways, as opposed to elements of the Russian Revolution, organized along anarchist lines because the CNT and the FAI, which was the, anarch- the Iberian Anarchist Federation, they had their militants based in these areas and they basically set up anarcho-communism, anarcho-communism whilst they were there. So in many cases, the militia actually moved through these areas and helped to collectivize things. And you know, they saw anarchism in action, I suppose. So that's what they were fighting for, and that's what kept them there. The interesting part is when that starts to break down, um, the central government starts to reorganise itself, because a lot of these communes and things happen basically because the central government's collapsed and they don't have any control of anything. But once that begins to change in about getting over to October, November 1936, then the gains, or as the anarchists saw them, of the revolution began to be pushed back. There's also some actual fighting that ends up between government units, communist units, and anarchist units over things like collectivization. So from that point onwards, there is less actually bringing anarchists or keeping anarchists at the front. So many of them actually leave um, in terms of military. One of the main things that the central government tried to do to roll back the revolution was to militarize the anarchist militias. So to put them under um, official government command and to introduce military discipline, um, which you might ask me about later. Um, but the, and so a lot of, a large percentage of anarchists volunteers in the Druti column, for example, left the front in protest at this militarization and then just, just went off basically back to Barcelona. Um, those that did stay sort of had a view that the conflict we actually do need to, to militarise a bit more. We need a bit more discipline. The anarchist militia units were a bit hectic in how they were organised. And then, but then that changes again once the anarchists, after the May Days, basically, um, in Barcelona, where anarchists and communists fight against each other on the streets and the anarchists lose, basically. Um, and then some of the units begin to be disbanded. And actually some of them, some of the anarchists end up joining the international brigades after that, um, where they're kept under close watch by the, the common turn. Um, Commandants, which is another complicated story, I suppose. So you've t- you've already touched on this. Did external coercion, which might be or what they might perceive as con- conventional military discipline and punishment, shape the way they behaved in, in any way? I mean, was it, or was this not actually carried out in many of the units that they actually fought in? Well, I mean, yes, basically, um, the way that the anarchist units were organised initially was very anti-hierarchical and very, well, very egalitarian and a bit wacky if you take it from a conventional military perspective. Uh, they didn't have any officers. They didn't have any punishments. You know, they actually voted on going over the top at, on, at various times. Not all units, but, you know, some of them did. And so, you know, the elected delegates, these could be recalled if they were unpopular or if they thought they were incompetent. So the power in terms of the military machine was kind of at the militia, the individual militia man or militia woman level. And this was excellent in anarchist theory, but it was made organizing actions very difficult. 
uh, there's a great story um, of there was a plan for an attack uh, which was supposed to take place at, at six in the morning and there was three anarchist units that were supposed to turn up so one of them turned up at, at six one of them turned up at 10 and one of them just didn't turn up and it's oh sorry we got talking and um the kind of delegate of the group at the time was just infuriated because <laughs> you know the, the action obviously failed but um he didn't he didn't have the authority to discipline the men because they, they would simply wouldn't have allowed it um so that changes in december january that's when the militarization drive really hits the anarchists so the Deruti column becomes militarized. It becomes known as the 26th Division of the Republican Army. Um, in many cases, the the leaders are actually the same same people. So they've they've changed their their titles, they, you know, their names, their military ranks, but they're still the same people. But in other cases, the militia units get disbanded. Um, the Iron Column is probably the the most famous one of those who were famously anti-militaristic as a military unit. So they were probably the most radical anarchists um, and were very against militarization. And they ultimately disbanded. They didn't, uh, they refused to join other units. But then once they join the popular army, then they do become subject subject to um, popular army, central government discipline. And um, although there is one story of, uh, interestingly, in terms of foreign anarchist volunteers, Service outside the international brigades is banned in July 1937. So any foreign anarchist units like the international groups of the 26th Division or the Duroti Column, which still existed uh, up until July, that gets disbanded. Uh, all the other ones get disbanded and they're forced either to leave Spain or join the... But there's one um, story of a, a German who actually takes up Spanish citizenship purely to avoid having to serve under a communist... So he, he's become Spanish so that he can still serve under a Spanish officer and doesn't have to go to the international brigades. Um, in terms of coercion, uh, I've looked at the, the commentary and files in the, from the, the Moscow archives, and there is you know, a huge amount of surveillance that goes on in the international brigades, specifically for anarchists who join, or even non-anarchists who were members of anarchist units, which is also fairly common, who then switch over. And quite often they're arrested for talking too much about politics or questioning war aims and things like this. Stuff that was fairly accepted in the anarchist units and the anarchist militias. There's always lots of debates about everything in the anarchist militias. Um, but this is viewed as kind of insubordination by a lot of the communist and indeed non-communist officers. Um, there are also a small number of cases of executions of anarchists who were seen to be out of line, um, both official and unofficial, ones that kind of get taken to prison for desertion, even though it's not, it wasn't really desertion, and then end up, end up dead. Uh, there's a case of an American called Albert Wallach, who that happens to. Um, he's killed by a, a communist uh, superior officer um, around Barcelona. So yeah, the coercion was was there, particularly towards the end of the conflict. And how, and from your research, did you find that the sort of motivation of individuals was actually shaped by their nationality, gender, uh, class, or maybe pre-war occupation in, in, in sort of significant ways? I think it probably was. In terms of occupation, uh, most anarchists in the anarchist movement this time were working class, which arguably isn't the case anymore, but don't need to get into that. Um, so one of the most common occupations for 
anarchist volunteers and indeed volunteers generally, uh, foreign volunteers generally, was uh, the sailing sailors or in the, the merchant marine, things like this. Um, partially because it was very easy for them to jump ship and kind of get to Spain more so than other people who would have to go through different channels. And this was also quite a heavily trade unionized movement at this time. So there's quite a lot of political now some political commitment amongst amongst sailors. Um, in terms of nationality, I think it's probably safe to say that those anarchists who came from countries which were already under the heel of fascism were more likely to stick around and, and complete their service in Spain than those from countries like France, where they could just go back over the border and go back to where they, where they lived. Uh, for German volunteers and Italian volunteers, that wasn't really an option. They couldn't go back home. And there's a few fairly tragic stories after uh, the Republican uh, movement fails and they're forced to go into France, into concentration camps. A lot of the German volunteers end up in, in concentration camps in the south of France. Then when the fall of France happens in 1940, they a lot of them get handed over by the Vichy regime and end up in concentration camps. In uh, Mauthausen was, was a big one for Spanish Civil War um, volunteers in uh, upper Austria. And many of them were killed. Um, by the Nazis, basically. So um, that certainly has an impact on how how committed they were to to remaining in Spain. I think. I think you've already touched on this, but did anarchists' political convictions bring them into serious conflict with, say, other volunteers, other combatants, or the Spanish Republican authority? Uh, yeah. Short short answer is is yes. Um, the May Days is is the most obvious example of this. The this this happened in in the kind of first week of. May 1937, when um, the anarchists had held the Telefonica building, which is a telephone exchange effectively in Barcelona, um, from the very early days of the start of the Civil War. They'd, they'd gone in and seized the place and being acted as a, as a base for anarchists, basically. Um, the communists got quite annoyed, and a lot of the other Republicans got annoyed because the anarchists kept listening into their phone calls, um, which they didn't appreciate at all. And there's a story that the president of the Republic, uh, Manuel Azaña, uh, actually got cut off by a anarchist sort of telephone operator halfway through a call and he was furious at this. Um, so partially in response to this, the government troops and communist troops storm the Telefonica building, which effectively starts the May Days. The anarchists inside resist and this results in fighting that lasts about a week and several hundred people are, are killed. Now, in order to... The, the, the kind of the way the fighting goes is that it's basically a stalemate, but the anarchist leadership comes from uh, the capital at the time back to Barcelona to try to convince people to lay down their arms because the kind of fratricidal nature of the conflict they thought would basically allow the fascists to, to seize Catalonia. Um, and so the anarchists stand down and the government troops are victorious. Then from this, there's lots of arrests. Um, particularly targeting foreign anarchists, actually. They get thrown in prison. Um, there's a Scottish anarchist called Ethel MacDonald, who is known as the Scots Scarlet Pimpernel, who actually is famous for um, helping anarchists, uh, foreign anarchists, escape from uh, Barcelona, effectively, into France and, and a way out to stop themselves from being arrested by, by the communist secret police. Um, and so this, you know, this brings them into conflict with with both the communists, but also the Spanish Republican authorities. The anarchists are ejected from the Spanish Republican government because of it. 
Um, they had joined the government in 1936, which was not very anarchist of them, but was viewed as the best way of winning the war, but they're ejected from this as well. So they lose all their power structures, um, basically. And it means that their role in the Republican war effort is is minimized and well their influence in the in, in the, the Republican war effort is, is minimized quite quite heavily from from then on and from from after May 1937 basically the anarchist movement the foreign anarchists in Spain are it's a rearguard action against both the nationalists and also the communists and, and non-anarchists in the on the Republican side so how would you rate the military impact of the anarchist volunteers during the during the civil war I think in terms of foreign anarchist volunteers, the impact has got to be, you know, tiny, minimal. There, just, there simply weren't enough of them to have made that big an impact. There's a lot of debate over whether like, how effective and how influential the international brigades were. Um, for example, lots of accounts credit them with saving Madrid in in 1936, which is a bit simplistic, but it's something that's uh, been very popular in terms of the historiography throughout since 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 Spain um, since the Spanish Civil War ended. In terms of numbers, I think it's it's probably best to situate the anarchist volunteers with the foreign anarchist volunteers within the anarchist movement itself. So, in terms of numbers of anarchists in the militias, there's around thirty thousand operating in Aragon and the Levante in the opening months of the war. And if you think about the Republican army which at the start of 1937, the high command estimated it had a total of about 150,000. That's that's a significant portion of proportion of the Republican army. And I would say that without the anarchist militias, the nationalists would have won much quicker. Um, in the first few months, if it hadn't been for the anarchist volunteers, the the territory that Franco had, had seized would have been far greater um, and the Spanish Civil War would have lasted a lot. Lot shorter basically so that's how i would situate the foreign anarchists in, in the scope of the whole war one thing that i was wondering was was the experience of the anarchists who fought in the spanish civil war did it shape their motivation to take up arms during the second world war yes uh, another another fairly simple simple answer would be yes um as you can imagine a lot of anarchists were fairly disillusioned by what happened in in spain particularly Working with others on the left, you know, the relations with the Communist Party, for example, were probably at an all-time low. So they were very cynical about the anti-fascist alliance that was proclaimed in the Second World War. So they were very cynical and sceptical of the fact that Britain and France, who did nothing to help Spain, now were quite willing to put on the mantle of anti-fascism in order to protect their empire. That's basically what they, they viewed it as. And the fact that after the Nazi-Soviet pact as well in 1939, that was a clear indication to many anarchists that the Soviets and the communists just couldn't be trusted. Um, so their arguments were from a basically taking a, a kind of revolutionary pacifist stance of saying, we don't want either power to win. We want a revolution which will wipe out the state and wipe out these fascist regimes in the process as well. Now, there are other ones, other anarchists who didn't take that view, who viewed the anti-fascist alliance in the Second World War as a, a positive and something that they could really get behind. And for a lot of them, it was, well, if we defeat Nazi Germany and fascist Italy, the next stop will be Spain and we'll, we'll liberate Spain, topple Franco, and then we can start trying to rebuild the anarchist movement again. 
So lots of um, anarchists served in the French Foreign Legion in the early stages of the, the Second World War. Um, they were tended to be recruited from the concentration camps, so it's kind of arguable if that was you know, forced recruitment or not, but certainly some were joining from an ideological perspective to try to defeat fascism. Uh, they'd seen how fascism had destroyed their own country, so they were very keen to avoid it doing that to the rest of Europe. Um, and, you know, they served in the French resistance as well, things like this. Um, one of the um, first units actually to liberate Paris was uh, a, a unit of Spanish Republicans, uh, which included tanks that were labelled Guernica and lots of Guadalajara, lots of different battles of the Spanish Civil War. So they were a part of Leclerc's division, General uh, Leclerc, the French, French general. So that was the La Nueve, the Ninth Company. It was called, uh, La Nueve is, is Spanish for the Ninth. They were called that because there were so many Spaniards in it, um, which is a kind of possibly a forgotten aspect of the Second World War as well. And the final question is, where can people learn more about your work and get your book? <laughs> well, uh, my book is available on uh, routledge.com and uh, in all good books, bookshops and booksellers. Hopefully the paperback will be coming out quite soon. So that should be a bit more in people's price range. Um, if you're connected to a university, I would recommend you to get your library to, to buy it so that you can look at it from that point of view. Um, it's a bit expensive at the moment. Um, but yeah, no, I've published, uh, in terms of, if you wanted to find out more about the anarchist, the role of foreign anarchists in the Spanish Civil War, I've written a, an article on the International Group of the Deruti Column, which is on uh, in the Journal of Contemporary History. Search that, you can find it. And I'm also on, on Twitter. Um, so if you want a copy of that article, then you just need to, to message me and I'll be more than happy to, to send one out. Maurice, thank you very much for your time. Thanks very much, Tom. Been a pleasure.